Alright, welcome back to another episode of the Ecumen. We've been gone after a little bit of a hiatus with all the things going on in the world. But we are back here to give you another lesson of the Baltimore Catechism. And today we're going to talk about the First Commandment. So we have Brian and Pete here in studio getting ready to uh, give you guys more details on your Catholic faith. So before we get started, the thing I'm going to ask you all is make sure that you subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, so that we can get uh, this material out to as many people as possible, and you guys can share it from there. Ask questions wherever you want. We will answer what we can, so hit us up in the comments sections on any of those tools or throw us emails. We'll go from there. So either way, moving on, we're going to hit uh, how the first commandment now uh, builds on where we kind of transitioned out of the first section, giving background on some of the basics of the Catholic faith and moving into section two of the Baltimore Catechism, starting with the last episode we did on episode 15, we're getting into now the commandments of the church. So what I want to add here is that the 10 commandments of the church are still in effect today. So these 10 commandments, we're going back now to Exodus where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, gets the 10 commandments, comes down, sees that all the Israelites are making the golden calf, ends up getting angry at all of them because God's angry at all of them, uh, wipes out the heads of the families, Levites take over, he gets another set of commandments, that whole thing, that's what we're talking about today. So we're going to go into the first commandment itself, starting with question 198. What is the first commandment of God? The first commandment of God is, I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt not have strange gods before me. Now, pretty straightforward. We don't worship demons. Why do I say demons? Because I think we've brought it up on a few episodes before. If we look at the Psalms, specifically Psalm 95, uh, depending on whether you're following a Protestant Bible or a Catholic Bible, I believe it's Psalm 96 or Psalm 95. And then verse 5 in there, if I remember correctly, is actually where David says the gods of the Gentiles are devils. So he's saying verbatim that the gods of the Gentiles, this is all the pagan gods, are actually demons. So as much as nowadays we want to talk about them as myths and we want to say that they're fake and they don't exist, all this other stuff, he's saying, no, they're real. They're actually a thing. They're posing as if they were God, as if they had that type of power. Um, and some of them even acknowledge the fact that God exists, etc. But whatever, they're acknowledging or trying to say that uh, despite the fact that creator God exists or may exist, they have a power there to do something, to be in charge, and everyone should worship them. And by the same token, Paul says the same thing in the Corinthians, or when he's talking to the Corinthians, I believe it's the second Corinthians where he brings it up. And when we put all this together and we look at the first commandment, God is saying he is the only thing to be worshipped. He is the only being in all of this, all of reality that we worship. Period. Done. You know, put a pin in it. That's it. Catholics only worship God. These demons out there that are getting worship from other people? No. False worship, violation of the first commandment. There's no one else we worship. And so this is, I know, right, for any Protestants out there who are sitting there saying that we're not Christians, this is that moment when we Catholics are going to reiterate, as we always do when you look at our catechism, our teachings, our core faith, we only worship God. Saints are there. They were elevated by God. He chose them, just like they're dukes and earls and this lower level of royalty to God because they have accepted his divinity and, and his charge, just like we're trying to do. Um, but overall, God alone is the only one to be worshipped, the only one to be adored. He's the only one we pray in certain ways too, which I know that Jake and I talked about that in a previous episode. And so it's key here that we remember 
God is the only one to be worshipped. That means we don't do worshipful acts to anything other than him. That means I'm not going to offer sacrifices to anything or anyone other than him from a religious and spiritual standpoint. Yes, I get it. As a husband, I sacrifice for my wife, but that is not at the same level as sacrificing for God. Yeah, we don't take goats outside and just sacrifice them to the marriage God so that you know we can have peace in our homes. Um, but in all seriousness, this is a problem for modern Catholics that have less catechesis than, say, our forefathers did. Because now we find ourselves in a lot of mixed religions, mixed uh, marriages. Uh, our friends and family tend to have various faith backgrounds. And you just want to be supportive. You know, like, oh, so-and-so is getting married. So what do, what do you do as a Catholic at that point? It, it's a tough social question by itself. And then when you add in or couple it with the religious aspect of true faith, true worship, which is only due to God, well, we're going to have to offend somebody. And it's not it's not difficult to have that conversation. If they truly love and respect you, uh, they'll understand your position. But to go to, I don't know, what's a litany of, of services available in the community, not, not just the mainstream Protestantism, but then you got like the Wiccan ceremonies in the beach in the woods. and You got yeah. Islam out there, yeah. you got Jew- Judaism in their temples. We have a whole bunch of random, like whatever these Christian science, there's a whole bunch of just odd things now. They're no longer Christian. Mormon would fall into that because they say that Christ became God. He wasn't always God. Same with Jehovah's Witnesses. Anything that's in that flavor that doesn't come out of Catholicism, and that's every other religion in the world other than Catholicism, is false. It has some element of falsehood. It's believable because even the devils don't tell lies all the time. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to go and just drink my water even though it's only 10% poison. <laughs> like, <laughs> Come on. We have to sit there and go, we only want something that's totally good. And so in this first commandment, it's not just in terms of us going to a service or saying, I am a Christian or I'm not. It's also saying, I'm not going to go and worship idols. So yes, again, Protestants, they're going to do the gotcha because you guys go and worship idols. We don't worship idols. We don't pray to idols from the standpoint of we're not sitting there and hoping this piece of wood or this piece of stone is going to come to life and do something for me. I don't think it has amazing powers. I think of it as a photograph of a saint who has already lived a Christian life and already been elected to heaven by God himself so that now his job is to glorify God forever by helping the rest of us on earth until this time is up. That's why we have saints. They are the embodiment of Christian living that all of us are trying to emulate. They are the pattern and they are in our family because we are Christian. They are Christian just like good angels are in that same family. We can talk to them. They can hear us. And everyone can argue about that if you want to throw comments in there. I'd be happy to go and have this discussion at length with you. But overall, what we're talking about when we say idolatry and graven images, we are talking stones. uh, We are talking images from the standpoint of pictures, whether they're paintings, whether they're trees that are carved, so wood carvings, you name it, that these pagans actually think they have power. They think it is God. They think it is a God and they need to worship it and they need to sacrifice things for it. And so they leave food for this little piece of wood or they put blood on this little piece of wood to make this little piece of wood happy or whatever they're doing. But they think it really is there and it's really alive and it's really telling them to do stuff. That's gross. The whole thing. And if you look at what's going on in Mexico as an example, that's exactly what they're doing with the uh, Santa del Muerte. They literally are feeding this thing and giving it stuff. It is complete idolatry. It's disgusting. It's pretty consistent with ancient faiths too. So you're a lot nicer than I am in this regard. 
because if you have any sort of intellectual or academic integrity, this is not a hard one to figure out. If you've studied any sort of ancient civilization at the lowest level through high school or even college, it's pretty obvious the difference between idolatry, where we are again worshiping uh, physical representations and manifestations a of creation, a creation, and we're offering things to it, whether it be incense or blood or food or whatever, versus having a pictorial representation of some kind, whether it be stone or art, painted, photograph, whatever. It's just not the same. If you've ever kissed a picture of your kid while on a long trip, now you're technically accused of idolatry by this nonsensical threshold. So there are many things that we do in pop culture that we find acceptable as something that we're supposed to be doing because it's just how we do it. We put our hands over our hearts when we say the Pledge of Allegiance. Is that idolatry? We bow our heads for moments of silence for people who are dead. Is that idolatry? And we're just going to keep going. We have pictures of our family members on our walls. Is that idolatry? Has anyone who's lost a loved one prayed at their tombstone? Is that idolatry? Because they kneeled down in front of it. I'll add one more for good measure. Statues. They're in the news. Statues. Just because we have a statue of a person out there, does that mean we're worshiping it because we built a statue? No. And the only reason that this confusion comes up, and I know Jake and I brought it up, and we're going to end it on this point here, and we'll move on to the next question. The only reason Protestants cannot understand, because of their doctrine, what the saints are and what the communion of saints, that whole action, that activity, that feeling, that purpose, that event is, is because they don't understand the fullness of worship. In a Protestant service, Protestants go there to sing and to have a homily and to read some scripture, and they leave. Catholics go to mass to do that stuff but the key the main event the reason we're all there first and foremost is to offer be with the son as he offers himself to the father and then to experience the physical the reality of the body blood soul and divinity the eucharist within us that's our secondary purpose and even that if it doesn't happen all the time we're it doesn't mean anything compared to the father and the son and their relationship with the holy ghost making that all real that offering of divinity and infinity to an infinite God, that is why Catholics go to Mass. And so if that is not the centerpiece and understanding of how you worship God, that's why the whole communion of saints is so confusing. So in summary, we worship only the uncreated God, not the creatures or the things he created. Again, it's something we can actually build on and we'll talk about it. But let's move on here into question 199. What are we commanded by the first commandment? By the first commandment, we are commanded to offer to God alone the supreme worship that is due to him. And that's what we're talking about. Only he gets worship and only he gets adoration. And I know that the word adore is misused very often in the society. Like, I just adore that little baby or I just adore him. He's great. Whatever it is, adoration is supposed to be reserved for the divine, for God alone. And then beyond that, we can honor, we can venerate, we can respect creatures but the divine in and of himself, what he is, he is the only one worthy of that type of treatment, that we would give everything for him. And he is the ultimate end. That's what he wants to be. That separation between the divine and the natural is one of the key differentiations that Catholics have with the rest of the religions and all other ideologies on the face of this planet. Catholics place the divine in a position that is unequaled, knowing that that divinity can occupy the same space or with be with the natural that's what christ is and 
we don't have any illusions that the natural will ever be as beautiful as the divine, will ever be as fulfilling as the divine. It will never take the place of the divine and nothing that is created or in nature or now corrupted by men and sin will ever get anywhere close to that level of perfection and that level of fulfillment that we can garner from the divine. So in terms of what are we doing for God alone, we respect his divinity and worship him as he is due. So yeah, so we worship God alone because we're Christian. We understand what God is doing, that relationship from the Trinity based on what he told us he's doing, and we take that to heart. So I think before we move on to the next question here, the thing we're also going to add in, um, I want to add in, since the Catechism brings up two verses here, they bring up uh, Luke 4.8 and Romans 11.36. Luke 4.8, And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, The Lord thy God shalt thou worship, and him alone only shalt thou serve. And then Paul wrote in Romans, or to the Romans, For from him and through him and unto him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, Christ's words are the most important here in this discussion from the standpoint of Catholics do not have, and Christians by proxy, all of us, do not have the capacity, the authority under God to say that Judaism, Islam, or any other false religion actually holds any validity whatsoever with God in reality. Any faith that denies Christ, his role as God, the Trinity, so in the end also denying the Holy Spirit, is a false religion. Judaism is an apostasy from the true faith, which is why they were able to kill Christ in the first place and put him up on a cross. Islam is a weird shifting, twisting of Judaism plus an amalgamation of paganism. Go look up the satanic verses. And Christianity they even acknowledge Mary and Jesus in the Quran, but in the end only acknowledge the Father. They ignore Christ as God and they ignore the Holy Ghost. These are falsehoods. These are not of good origin. These are not good things for us. If we worship God, that means that we owe him his supremacy, Father and Son and Holy Ghost, first and foremost, among all belief systems among men. And so if anyone else is out there saying anything contrary to the Trinity, it's the only way, not through Buddha, not through any weird Hindu gods, not through Islamic Allah or whatever, all that garbage, if we're not willing to reject it, we are not fulfilling the first commandment. I don't know if you have anything else to add in there. No, that was well done, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So moving on here, uh, question 200, how do we worship God? We worship God by acts of faith, hope, and charity and by adoring him and praying to him. Now, when we talk about acts of faith, hope, and charity, uh, we addressed this earlier on. These are the divine virtues. This is when we accept that grace which God has given to us, not only to make the world around us better, to fulfill our roles as fathers or wives or employees or students or children better so that we can do that as Christ-like as possible. In the end, what we're doing is we're glorifying God for doing good works because he's empowering us to do so. Without him, we can do nothing. With him, we accept all of that that he has given us and turn it right back to him and say, this is all yours. So every single moment when we wake up in the morning, 
every prayer that we say, every act that we do, up to and including eating, which is why we bless our food and think about all these things that have to be done, and recreation, these are all done for the glory of God. Everything has to be done in a measured and virtuous way so that we can emulate Christ in that act and make sure that he cannot find fault in anything, so God cannot find fault in anything that we've done. All for him, all the time. And that actually goes back into what Paul was saying to the Romans. Saying they're in him, through him, with him. Him. That, that's why we're here. That Again, the meaning of life, not to be esoteric. It's, it's God. And so then we have to live that way at all times. I'm going to circle back on a small thing, seemingly small thing. Uh, what a beautiful witness to be out eating and to do the sign of the cross and, and say the blessing over the meal. Um, for some reason, I think a lot of Catholics get hung up on this and they're afraid to express their faith publicly. Uh, but it is your duty and obligation to be a witness to the, the one true holy faith. And what a, what a curiously small way that you can be the light in the darkness that kind of piques people, people's interests or, or an icebreaker of sorts if they want to ask you about your faith. Something so small and seemingly insignificant could be the thing that really draws somebody in from out of the dark. That is one of the foundational prayers of a Christian is the sign of the cross, or as we read in Ezekiel 9.4, the sign of the Tau, which is already marked on the foreheads of the Hebrews who are awaiting Christ. And now that we have him, we really should just belt him out all the time. So as often as you can do a reverent cross for the glory of God, do them. And if you don't want to do it in a way where you're worried about, oh, again, it took time for me to get to the point where I'm okay doing them in public. It's an interesting transition to try to work for God and not as much myself kind of thing. But I get it. And honestly, we'll go with the early Christians dealing with the Romans also had to deal with it. They were worried about being killed. So what did they do? <laughs> cross your forehead. So just a little thumb right up there on the forehead. You can do a cross right there. Still counts. The Father, Son, and Holy Ghost right there. So make sure that there are many acts that we can do. And to elaborate on this question 200 here, just with a little more out of the catechism before we move on, um, it has a few subsections here of the answer. Um, so it talks about worshiping God by an act of faith when we firmly assent to the truth of God's revelation on the word of God revealing who can neither deceive nor be deceived. This is us acknowledging the fact that the scripture is inerrant. God would only allow pen to hit paper for his assembly of that first pillar of the deposit of truth, deposit of faith that is held by the church was to be scripture. He's not going to allow that to be tainted in any way. So now after we leave the Catholic church, now all of the translations of Holy scripture are suspect and all of the commentaries that are outside of the church also gain a lot of scrutiny or should gain a ton of scrutiny because in the end we cannot validate their meaning. However, because God is God, God can never lie out of justice. In the end, we as Catholics can sit there and say, he is right, and so is his scripture, so is his tradition, and so is his church. So then moving on to the next one here, we worship God by an act of hope when we firmly trust that God, who is all-powerful and faithful to his promises, will in his mercy give us eternal happiness and the means to obtain it. This means we all can't go around being like Judas. We can't go around being like Martin Luther. We can't sit there and say that, oh, there's no way I could possibly be forgiven, so I need to go change the truth of the church. I need to find another way to get to God because there's no possible way he could ever forgive the horrible things that I've done in my past. This is where we all have to sit there and trust in God's mercy. His justice means that he can't lie. If he told us he'll forgive us, 
for coming back to him, repenting and amending our lives. We have to take his word, go to confession, take care of that problem, get in a state of grace, and then live that way. That's how we show hope, to sit there and say, we can make it to heaven as long as we humbly do as Christ commanded and faithfully do it along the way. Uh, C, we worship God by an act of charity when we love God above all things for his own sake and our neighbor as ourselves for the love of God. This means I'm not out there trying to go and do everything for myself. This is agape. So going back to the definitions of love and the words for love that the Greeks used in terms of agape, phylos, or eros as the three major examples, um, agape is the sacrificial love. That is what happened on the cross. Eros is what happens when I'm out there just trying to get something to feel better about myself for me alone, regardless of how it hurts anybody. So what we're talking about with charity How can we give of ourselves the same way Christ gave on the cross? How can we take our crosses up in a way that gives other people benefit and first and foremost glorifies God because they're getting the benefit. We're able to contribute his grace. We can be that conduit for grace to God. It's a beautiful thing. So that's charity. D. So this is the fourth item here. We adore God by acknowledging his infinite excellence, our complete dependence on him and our total subjection to his will. This is what it is to be a servant, or as Louis de Montfort says, a slave of God. This is how we accept the fact that he is divine and we are natural. We, although we have a soul, have no capacity to do good without his consent, without his will. So he has to permit it. He has to will it. In the end, all good is coming out of him. So permissive will really is more on the evil side, not the good. His active will is for all good things. So any good act that we actually somehow manage to do, despite our fallen nature, despite all of our sins and any of our vices, any of the vices we have not actually remedied, um, those good deeds are how we actually can show others that he is working through us. It's us accepting his will because his will is all that matters. This is how we throw off the old Adam and take on the new Adam. That's uh, how Paul talks about it in uh, the uh, to the Corinthians. And in the end, we have to acknowledge, we have to acknowledge that we get nothing by our own hands. It's two, two sides of the same coin with Luther. So how much pride do you have to have to truly believe you're just beyond and above any sort of redemption to think of yourself so wicked and evil that even an infinite God couldn't cover you with an infinite amount of mercy. But at this, the other side of that is you need to understand that left to your own devices, and I'm speaking from personal experience, having lived most of my life outside the church, left to my own devices, I truly did not accomplish any truly good thing. Uh, a lot of it, even culturally, seemed nominally good, right? Naturally good, but it was really all self-serving to a large extent. Um, and that's just how we operate as humans until we're covered in grace and we're prompted by the Spirit, prompted by our guardian angels to do holy things, to to reach far above and beyond that for the sake of the love of God, for the glory of God. And those inspirations. Uh, I'm beyond even contributing to myself because uh, I know what I am at my basis level. And so anything that is good, I just recognize that it must be uh, must be God Almighty prompting me in a fashion that I'll probably understand after my death. But for now, I just accept that it's his will. 
And then moving on to the next part here. So we're still in uh, question 200. These are all the expansions on how we worship God. So we pray to God by lifting up our minds and hearts to him. This means don't focus on the created. So when you look at the hedonists out there, people who do not care about morality or anything bigger than themselves, what are they focused on? How can I make my belly feel better? How can I make sure that every single physical and emotional want is satisfied right now and they don't care what it takes to get it? By contrast, there's the Catholic view, which looks at the divine, the infinite, and knowing that it's a long game, that as much as life may feel like it's going to go forever, even 100 years is only a blink of an eye compared to eternity. So our long game means that everything we're focused on is the long game in eternity. We're focusing on infinity. And as hard as that may sound, God gives us the capacity to look towards him, the infinite, the powerful, the almighty, and make sure that every act that we do, every thought that we have, is for him. So, more acts of worship. Again, these are things, by the way, that we do not do to saints. So, just as a heads up. (laughs) Because all the saints actually did all of these things for God, and they're still doing it right now. That's one of the reasons why we Catholics want to be just like them. That's kind of our goal. So, all right. Next one, F. Acts of faith, hope, and charity, adoration, and prayer may be internal or external. They are internal when they are only in our mind and heart, and they are external when they are manifestedly, manifested outwardly by signs or words. So this is just you go into a mass, and you see a bunch of people that are sitting there meditating silently. You see people that are crossing themselves and still going through stuff and reading. So you're like, no, probably doing prayers, maybe some holy reading. And then other people who are praying out loud, other people who are singing, there are other people who are writing, etc. All of these acts are different ways to actually glorify, honor, and worship God. So there are many ways we can do this. This is the cool thing about being human and one of God's creatures with the goal to worship him forever and to be one of his saints. All of us were given special, all of us were given special attributes in terms of strengths and weaknesses. And if we play into those, we have a means by which we can get closer to God. So not all of us are going to be great in the mental prayer area. So we all need to do it, but it's harder for some than others. And by the same token, some of us can't sing. Some of us can't play instruments. Some of us can't write really well. Some of us can't speak in front of public individuals, you know, and to the public, whatever. All of us have different skill sets. So we shouldn't try to be the same way. And just because one person used one road and that's how they were able to get themselves into a position where they can now be an example for society or a saint does not mean that every single one of us is going to use that exact same road. Now, that said, I'm only talking about the mechanisms by which or the, um, I would say, the fine details of following Christ. Because those saints did not get to heaven by not following Christ. (laughs) So as much as we want to sit there and focus on an extraordinary means or some other way to get to heaven that is not Catholic, that is not the privileged path. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be controversial. Sorry, sorry, I had to laugh at that. Sorry, Uh, we have uh, certain clergy who are out there talking about a privileged path versus non. That that doesn't exist, okay? In in heaven, everybody's going to be Catholic, period. Everyone who had to get there had to go through particular judgment. They had to accept Christ as their Lord, accept all falsehood as false, had to be repentant for all the sins they ever did wrong with enough grace somewhere in there that he allowed them through. Because if they had no grace, which is a state of mortal sin, they would have gone straight to hell. So in the end, Catholic, it's the only way. All right. Two more here. and We'll move on to the next, uh, next question here. Eternal worship is of no value 
unless it is joined with internal worship and is in an outward manifestation of our internal convictions and sentiments. This means as much as, again, Protestants may go on and sit there and tell us that we do repetitious prayer. They say this, by the way, while they ignore Psalm 136. They ignore the where David continues to repeat himself over and over, by the way. Look it up. It's great. And then there's another point where Jesus actually repeats himself three times in prayer. He says the same thing over and over. Um, and there's another point in there, too, talking about repeating oneself in prayer. The whole point being, it's not about the fact that I said a prayer a hundred times. Because if that was true, then every Protestant should really have stopped saying the Our Father after they said it once. Okay? You're all saying it more than one time. I know you are. I'm not accusing you of repetitious prayer, so you need to give a break on the Catholics who are going to say the Our Father more than once a day. So, that said then we have the ability to not only say a prayer though but we have to live it so this is not about me just uttering some words and zoning out and be like man i can't wait till the football game's on man i can't wait till i get food oh this is so boring but i'll just say it anyway no that is a good way to destroy all of the grace you could possibly get out of a prayer or a mass so instead of that what they're saying here is the only way we worship god is we commit ourselves in mind and soul and body to the worship of God, which means our prayer better emulate our feeling in our emotions and our feeling in our soul so that what we're doing is we're uniting the whole being, every single part that God gave us, to give it back to him. That's the point. So when we worship, sure, we're going to be distracted. St. Teresa of Avila talks about being distracted. Read the interior castle. That's what she brings up in there about how you have to go to align yourself to God and keep the rest of the world out and away from you while you focus. But she acknowledges demons are going to get in your head. There's going to be a whole bunch of things that happen to you at this moment where you're like, oh, I'm just trying to focus, but I can't stop focusing on it. And we go through that little wrestling match all the time when we're in mass. I'm sure Brian's familiar with it. We get to watch our kids as the kids actually become that distraction element for us. It's pretty awesome. And uh, same with rosaries when we do those, because your rosary is going to take you 15 to 20 minutes. And that's if we're only doing a third of it. If we're going to do the full meditations of the rosary, that is a huge, huge investment. But overall, this means committing ourselves to feeling like Christ. We're trying to go figure out what it was like to be on the cross. The most terrible set of feelings ever for a man who is perfect, for a man who did nothing wrong. We want to know what that was like and how we did it to him. So all these things start to go on through our heads, but our prayers have to reflect how we actually feel. And of course, you're going to go through dry spells as well. So you have distraction, dry spells. You'll have times where you're just on fire and you're full of fervor and zeal. And really the bottom line is you can't fake it till you make it. So it's not like we're just checking boxes here on the Catholic side of the fence. Well, you know, took care of that, said those words, and I'm all done. It, it's just... Uh, the more I become Catholic and the further I get away from my roots uh, as far as Protestantism goes, it's so clear how disingenuous and, and just shallow a lot of these accusations are. And a little bit of research or even just asking a, a for real Catholic it would probably answer most of their questions. And that's one of the things that I would actually add in here as well is that Protestantism and its impacts on Catholic theology um, are minimal. However... Protestant impacts on Catholic worship, especially in the past 50 years, have been devastating. So in terms of looking at Catholics nowadays who go through the motions, who don't live the Catholic life, even though they talk about it, who act like Southern Baptists to sit there and be like, you're going to hell. 
even though they have no idea and nowhere in Catholic theology does it authorize anyone to make that proclamation or judgment. These people are claiming to be Catholic and going to a Catholic mass and taking communion and then all the while not actually believing Catholic truth or living the Catholic life or feeling the Catholic feelings or trying to meditate and to basically shave off all the stuff that is not Catholic, all the stuff that is not like Christ. And so all of that needs to be acknowledged here is that what we're talking about in this catechism and Catholicism as a religion and as a perfect church, that even though she is perfect and her theology that we're giving you here from the catechism is perfect, the worshipers, like Brian and myself, we are not perfect. <laughs> so, Far from it. Yeah. So don't take our word for it. You got to take the church's word for it. Understand that the church is where the truth comes from. In the end, all of us need to be trying to adhere to that perfection which she prescribes because her bridegroom, Christ, has told us this is the way it goes. So again, mind, body, and soul, that is how we worship God, not just in our words alone or in our superficial actions. We're not Pharisees, we're Catholics. All right, and then last one here, and then we'll move on, I promise. External worship is necessary because we are bound to render to God the homage of our bodies and because it serves to preserve, increase, and express internal worship. Man is composed of body and soul, and the body can and does aid the soul in its operations. We are moved to be more devout in our internal acts of worship by sacred music, art, public and private recitation of prayers, and the ceremonies of the liturgy. This, ladies and gentlemen, as we have started to lead down this road and talk about mind, body, and soul... This is where we're also going to say, stop getting rid of artwork and stop getting rid of good music and stop getting rid of good liturgy, okay? It needs to come back. We need all of these things because these elevate our minds. I don't want to be sitting in mass and hearing a football game. That would be distracting. I don't want to be sitting in mass and looking out clear glass windows and looking at all sorts of random crap going on on the street. That's not what I want. And I don't want to go and hear a freaking crappy rock band to try and belt out something and tell me that this is Christian. That's not it at all. Okay, the angels in heaven are not playing a freaking rock concert. They are actually singing in some of the most beautiful tones and melodies you could ever imagine in your life. And even then, anything you can imagine doesn't even come close. And if you want to know an example of what angels would sound like, listen to the Miserere Medeus. Find that on YouTube. I'll even link it here for you. Listen to that for a minute and remember what that is. That is Psalm 50. Read Psalm 50 and get the emotions out of it. That was such a moving chant that that was only allowed to be played, I think it was like one or two days a year, is what it originally was set at. And it was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart himself who goes in there and listens to it twice. And he actually was able to transcribe every single note of every single part of that entire piece and share it so everyone knew how to play it. And now you can hear it today. So, fun trivia fact. Either way, remember, God in heaven is not impressed by the creatures and creation of this earth. <laughs> he it, doesn't need us. It's supposed to be timeless. That, that should be your, your first layer of, of emotional, I guess, like a litmus test. If I walk into your parish and it looks, sounds, and smells like the 1970s, I don't think that's what heaven is going to look like. Like the with crappy wood paneling, whitewash. Yeah, and you got the guy that's half balding with the ponytail and the, and the, the six hundred dollar acoustic guitar, and he's just reliving his high school glory days. And I wish I was, I wish I was making this up, but I have been in so many parishes across the states, and even in uh, in Europe as well, that sort of have gone to this model, and it's so embarrassing, and it's, and then I look around and wonder why I'm the only person under fifty. 
it really shouldn't be surprising to anybody. I think that's what uh, that's the ground the ground zero uh, look when Pete says that Protestant Protestantism, as far as liturgical impact on the Catholic Church in the last fifty years, that's what it looks like. If you walk in and everybody's above the age of fifty, you have horrible music. You can't locate the tabernacle. the The architecture and the decor are just a postmodernist awful whatever the homily will feel superficial as well just a pre-warning yeah i mean my kids can sit there and sift through it pretty quickly and understand what they're up against and yeah the the impact is just not there but when you walk into a traditional parish the first thing you should notice is silence you should be in a small uh, at least a level one type of awe when you get in and start looking around and looking at the stained glass or even the um uh, the design, the statues, the architecture, you're talking the color. There will be a bunch of colors that were used on purpose. You'll see oftentimes a lot of gold. Everyone's going to wonder why so much went into the tabernacle and into the altar and into the design and the aesthetic is because we're supposed to be thinking of God. And we have to remember that even the best craftsmen here on earth could never do anything that even pales in comparison to the creation of God. But it's the closest we have to focus on God. So we allow these men to go and build these statues and to paint these murals and to play this music with the organ and these choirs of, if we're lucky, nuns or monks are the best. And you get to listen to them. Go find the Eastern chants, by the way. They're beautiful listening to these things, completely emotionally moving and timeless. They are still beautiful today. They were beautiful 100 years ago. They were beautiful 500 and they were beautiful 1,000 years ago. These are awesome. So in the end, our whole point here is that in if this worship of God, this experience, this act, this purpose is not moving and compelling in terms of whatever you are doing today in your belief system, you should probably consider trying to come over to the real Catholic side and actually learn what it is to worship because everything else pales in comparison to it. But again, the only way we can do this is we have to then bind mind body and soul together and that is what we do to worship our god he is that important that we should be actually trying to figure out how i can devote my mind body and soul in every single moment of every single day with mind body and soul to god period done he's worth everything even if i lost everything else in the world i should be able to give that to him forever because he's worth it he gave us himself on the cross and he would have done it if there were just one of us so we probably should give him back at least the time in worship that we can and we'll make it uh try and get closer anyways to at least not be completely uh unworthy we'll go with that so god help us all so moving on to question uh, 201 what does faith oblige us to do faith obliges us first to make efforts to find out what god has revealed second to believe firmly what god has revealed and third to profess our faith openly whenever necessary now this goes back to what I was saying earlier in the fact that we have to openly profess who God is, what he is, and what he is not. That means what God likes and what God does not like. What pleases God and what offends God. I'm sorry, but Protestant worship where we deny the sacraments, we deny the clergy, we deny the Pope, we deny the beauty that needs to be in the liturgy, um, we deny the traditions, the sacred traditions of the church and the authority the church holds even when Christ said it himself, Matthew eighteen seventeen, and the fact that a deposit of truth would be held in it, and that's 1 Timothy three fifteen from Paul, Protestants deny that. Those denials, I'm sorry, are offensive to God. 
So although Protestants may want to do many things, and many of you Protestants want to impress God, and you want to love God, and you do love God, great. The problem is, is that if you want to do that fully, you have to do that as a Catholic. You cannot do that partially adhering to any philosophy which holds error and offense because an infinite God is infinitely offended by anything that's wrong. So if we're looking at Protestantism and saying, okay, you have multiple things within Protestantism that are infinitely offensive to God, how bad is Judaism or Islam which completely deny the divinity of Jesus Christ? And how bad are pagan philosophies and ideals that completely deny God and his role at all? Or Satanism, which is absolutely turned against it with the express intent and open intent from its adherence to actually destroy everything Christian on the face of this earth. That is what we need to be looking at. This is also, by the way, I'm going to add it in here because it's a topic that I know the, the catechism doesn't really hit, but I think it should start discussion. This is where Freemasonry falls, unfortunately, because Freemasonry tries to equivocate between Islam, Judaism, Zoroastrianism, Christianity, whatever. And they try and put all these things together and say they're all on the same level. And it's more important to have a brotherhood of men where we can all be together and advance men and natural things, regardless of what it means to eternity or infinity. I'm sorry, but Christ Jesus said he is the only way and he is the king. If we do not acknowledge his role, we are infinitely offending him. And unfortunately, philosophies like those that Freemasons have as their core beliefs, their core membership requirements are offensive to God, that does not work for displays of faith to God that would actually please him at all. All or nothing. So this is not a buffet, and we've said it before. Our religion that was given us by Jesus Christ is not a buffet table. It's we take it all or we don't take any of it. And if we only take some of it, it still doesn't count because we are not going to be able to perfect ourselves the way God wants us perfected by only taking some of the grace that he offered and refusing the rest, cutting off not only ourselves to that grace, but anyone else by offending him in those aspects of our worship. All right, move on to uh, 202. What does hope oblige us to do? So as you can see, we're kind of moving through the divine virtues here. So we hit faith, we hit hope, charity's coming up, but hope obliges us to trust firmly that God will give us eternal life and the means to obtain it. Again, we can't be Judas's here. We can't be negative Nancy's. We can't just sit there and talk down about how we don't have any hope and we're all terrible. Now, there may be some of you who have read about saints who are very down on themselves to the point of scourging themselves or to the point of other penances that are absolutely, utterly painful. This is not because they hate themselves or have no hope. <laughs> These people are understanding how bad their sins are and are doing everything they can to atone, knowing that they're worthy and knowing that God is worthy of any sacrifice that we could possibly give him that is within reason, still abiding by all 10 commandments. And whether we like it or not, I'm sorry, but sleeping on a wooden bed without sheets, without a mattress, he didn't say we couldn't do that. That actually is fully in line with something that he would find acceptable as a penance, saying, I'm going to swear off sweets and I'm not doing them ever again. And doing this for his glory and for graces for other people, he likes that. We are allowed to feel discomfort in this life out of hope of God and still not be self-deprecating to the point where we believe we cannot be forgiven. Judas did not believe he could be forgiven by God. He actually took God down a peg and then denied God's divinity to do that, which is terrible. That, ladies and gentlemen, same thing Luther did, is the unforgivable sin 
because they never asked forgiveness for it. They never repented for it. And they never amended their lives to move away from it closer to God. You cannot be forgiven for something you never asked forgiveness for. That's the difference between the saints who scourge themselves or wear hair shirts or abstain from meat for their entire life or, or go through anything other else that they would abstain from alcohol or something. All of those things are think about all of those ways they could give up something and feel pain. They still have hope. They're doing it to atone versus Judas or Martin Luther, who basically said, I have no hope. There's nothing left. So I just have to go and change all of reality around me. Yet they didn't realize God never changes. For those of you that may be considering, you know, penances that are above and beyond, uh, I think it's a good time to throw in the disclaimer. Uh, you should definitely take it up with your confessor and definitely have a spiritual director of some kind that will balance you because once you start feeling the the inspirations towards any sort of penance, uh, Satan is very quick to come in and, and take you off balance and... Uh, and to tempt you into those extreme penances where you may not have any fruit at all. It may just be a path of despair that you cannot see uh, because of, of, of a spiritual blindness that is provided by those demons. So please go see your spiritual con uh, directors, go see your confessors, and submit yourself humbly to them and to what they tell you. Yeah, so if they say don't do it, don't do it. Um, and to add on to that, just how I said before, Catholicism, true Christianity, the original Christianity, it's all or nothing. That means all virtue, no vice. If I decide that I wanted to do a penance, but in the end I'm doing it intemperately to the point where I damage my ability to be virtuous in another area, I have now negated all of the grace I could have potentially gotten out of that penitential act because I did it without temperance. So when we go to excess, we error to excess, that's where Satan wants us to go. Satan is really good at creating false dichotomies. Uh, what that would mean for people who don't really get what I'm going for here. He can create a false argument that is where he has created both sides. He's actually on both sides and he wants you to tip to one side or the other. But in the end, your only way you could have gone is actually not to fall on either side and walk the knife edge. Again, as Christ said, the gate is narrow and the path is wide that leads to destruction. It's Satan who's sitting on both sides of that. So this is that whole argument between what we, we just go with, a, we go with uh, Nazis and uh, uh, communists when they're basically the same thing. You can't sit there and be like, well, I mean, I guess I would just go pro Nazi because I hate communists or vice versa. Well, they're both terrible and they're actually both out of line with God, which means choosing either one is actually a bad decision. So, Again, temperance, that's what we're talking about. Spiritual directors and your confessors, your priest is there to keep you temperate. Make sure to ask him for guidance and that way you'll make a good decision going forward in terms of how you want to offer penances. The third way was keeping your monarchy. <laughs> <laughs> they could have kept monarchy. It probably could have still worked. That's why they have one in heaven. But, you know, who am I? It's okay. All right, question 203. What does charity oblige us to do? Charity obliges us to love God above all things because he is infinitely good, and to love our neighbor as ourselves for the love of God. Again, sacrificial love. We give God what he is due. Hint, hint, everything. So if you aren't ready to give him everything that you have, then you're not ready for him. So you can't sit there and say, hey, help me, God, and make me better and fix everything. But I mean, I'm not ready to give you this yet. I'm not ready to give you that yet. That's what, if you read Confessions by St. Augustine, I believe that it's almost exactly what he says verbatim. Give it to me, God, and fix me, but not yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
It's like, we can't do that. And I, and honestly, this is uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, a current figure who has said something to this exact effect where he said, yes, I need virtue and I need to be fixed, but I'm not ready for it yet. And the thing is, is we Catholics do not have that capacity to make such a decision. We have to go now because if tomorrow, if the next five minutes from now I am dead and I have to go and talk to Christ face to face in judgment, he's not my buddy. He's not my pal. He's not my bro. He's a judge and he's infinite and he's perfect. And he knows that he gave me every single ounce of grace that I needed to actually ensure that I would die in a state of grace for his glory. If I refuse it and I don't make it, no excuse is going to get me out of that. So charity, give everything you got all the time. And in the end, if you're like, well, I don't know if I can, I don't know if it's possible. So me speaking personally in terms of tithing, tithing is one of those great examples that everyone keeps talking about. Why? Because for some reason, before you start tithing, you're like, oh, I don't know if I have enough money to tithe. And guess what? When you lo and behold, you start doing it. You're like, wait a minute. Okay. Oh no, I, I got this. I can do it. And all of a sudden everything works out. And it's the same thing with kids. Everyone's like, well, I don't know if I can have kids. I don't know if I have enough time. I don't know if I have enough whatever in me to actually raise kids. And after you do it, you're like, oh, okay. I, I guess I can do it. And it's just believe in God, okay? If you're doing something for his glory, the way he commanded it to be done, he will give you all the strength necessary to make sure everything works out in your favor. So be faithful, charity, charity first. It's all good. 204, how can a Catholic best safeguard his faith? A Catholic can best safeguard his faith by making frequent acts of faith, by praying for a strong faith, by studying his religion very earnestly, by living a good life, by good reading, by refusing to associate with enemies of the church and by not reading books and papers opposed to the church and her teaching. This is easy. You don't, you just don't do it, right? So you go to bed at night. Do you leave your house wide open? Windows, doors, everything. You just don't. And it, it, and it seems... I leave my keys in the ignition and the door open like when I get on my car every night. What? what? Granted, that's an obscene amount of faith, Pete. <laughs> but, but it's a uh, it's, it's common sense. If you expose yourself to garbage day in and day out, even if it's like by the world standards, not that bad, quote unquote, not that bad. Uh, eventually, you're going to just start to drift. You're going to start to dilute all the all the built up you know graces that you've been given, or maybe strove for, or worked for. Uh, the whole point of this life is to beat that snot out of that stuff and to achieve some sort of holiness before you die. And you're not going to get there with modern music and trash TV shows and scandalous uh, gossip ridden, uh, you know, web pages that track celebrity, Facebook. whatever, Facebook, Twitter. Oh man. Uh, not even to get into the sheer amount of just free pornography that's available. All of this is just meant for your destruction. Satan is very intelligent. And as much as we're going to think, no, 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 I got this. It's just the one time. I'm just going to look this once. I'm just going to listen this one time. I'm just going to go to this bar this one time. And after that is done, like, would you, I don't know. Would you take the risk with Russian roulette? Is that really what you want to do? You want to just roll it? Because maybe this time is the time that it works for me. Or what if it doesn't? What if this is it and you died right after that? And I want to say it's St. Alphonsus, if I remember correctly, and I think we've addressed it in a previous episode, but the number of sins beyond which one can no longer be forgiven. He brings this up about people who ended up at the very end. They didn't know it was the end. And the last thing they did 
poof, done, sent themselves into mortal sin, and it was over. Because they presumptuously, presumptuously just assumed they would just go to confession later. Which is sacrilegious, guys. Like, God only gives you the luxury of forgiveness and the power of repentance and the sacrament itself, the grace that comes with it, because he wants amendment of life. He wants you to devote yourself to him entirely. And if you're saying, well, I can just get one more sin in there before I go to confession, that's making fun of the entire thing. That's mocking it and taking it down a notch and trying to act like God can be negotiated with. He can't be. So in the end, our goal here is not to be ambushed. Don't walk in to people that are all ready to beat you up. Don't set this whole thing up so you're just, you have to fall on your face hard. Just stay away from that. Yeah, life is hard enough as it is. Like, uh, there's so much out there seeking your destruction already, and there's just absolutely no reason why you have to help the enemy out in your own demise. <laughs> it just, it baffles me. It really does. Yes, that, that is the equivalent of spiritual suicides. What we're saying is take every care to go in the right direction, to go to the right places, to associate with the right people, to turn down and walk away from those beliefs and acts which ultimately offend God. Because going back to this all or nothing thing, I'm going to keep talking about the buffet table. You eat that one little bit of poison that was on the table. It's still poisonous. It was stupid. Why? Why? No. It was still gross. It was still something he's like, no, not at my table. We shouldn't do that. So let's think about the way that we go all in for God completely, hold nothing back. And that means that we have to find every way possible to get ourselves away from the world and all the evils that Satan has introduced to it through original sin. And don't get me wrong, men played a part. I get it. And it is hard to walk away from those sins and those vices. I know Brian's had to walk away from them. I've had to walk away from them. Every Catholic I know has had vices they had to walk away from. And it's hard. And some of them are still fighting. But that doesn't give us the excuse to quit. I'm, I'm going to amend my prior comment. I used too broad of a brush. There's no way to go through this day in this world. Uh, today I woke up, you know, I went to work. I, I came over to Pete's house. I'm going to I'm going to be exposed to uh, various amounts of temptation, and I'm going to be exposed through no fault of my own to the actions of other people, whether they are targeting me personally or not. That I have no idea. But what I do know, what I can control, are the things to use a word that all the kids like to use: the things that trigger me, the my the snares I readily know are available. Right. So I know what I am completely susceptible to. And I can identify that as a reasonable adult human being. So I just avoid those things. Like, I'm not saying you have to just, you know, be completely, you know, just buttoned up in your house and, and never leave. I'm not trying to induce any sort of, like, widespread agoraphobia. But you, you just have to recognize what your weaknesses are, where the chinks in the armor are, and learn to run away and retreat appropriately versus going in. Some things you just don't fight. And some things you must retreat from. Yeah, spiritual combat is what I would sit there and reference again as a uh, guide. As you're wondering what I run into and what I run away from to make sure that I do what I have to do to protect my Catholic faith. The spiritual combat is a really good primer on that topic. So it's only about 200 pages. I know I've brought it up in previous episodes before. But use that because really as long as we're dealing with any of the vices outside of impurity you're actually supposed to charge in. You're supposed to actually continue forcing yourself to actually get over it. And you work through as a learned habit to walk away from it as you're in it uh, versus impurity is the one where unfortunately the hold that 
our physical, our flesh has over us is too great for us to resist. That's the only one where we have to flee every time. So considerations, again, throw us messages if you have questions. We'll go from there and, and be happy to help you out and kind of set you on the right path, at least with things to read or answer your questions you may have. So question 205, how does a Catholic sin against the faith? A Catholic sins against faith by apostasy, heresy, indifferentism, and by taking part in non-Catholic worship. Oof. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> For Catholics out there, I know a bunch of you never got that little bullet in RCIA. I know it. I'm one of them. And that is unfortunate. Because in the end, what that is trying to warn you about. And again, let me go and reiterate. I know I talked about this in the very, very, very first episode of this entire podcast. This catechism that I am reading out of is an English translation of Robert Bellarmine's small catechism. That catechism was solid, made ultimately from the truths that came out of the Council of Trent. This is gold, people. Treat it as such. That little piece of information right there, I don't want to know how many people have gone to hell over it. Again, Islam is false. It offends Jesus Christ. Judaism is a modernist religion founded by people who killed Jesus Christ. It offends him. And then Protestantism, where selective truths are believed and they change by the day. And then every Protestant thinks they can live with every other Protestant and they can accept every other Protestant truth. Even though they're like, well, I don't agree with that, but it's okay. We can all just be together. No, there is no brotherhood that can be formed that is built upon offending God just because, well, I mean, at least we're just not fighting, right? Like, no. And at the lowest rung of the ladder there, just being a good guy <laughs> just doesn't cut it. Um, there's so many personal standards that people apply. Christ said, call no man good. Yeah, I Period. Mean, God is good. Men are not. And again, apostasy, complete rejection of the faith. There are millions of Catholics in this world today who have done that, who are in states of mortal sin. Heresy. This is Catholics who cannot utter the truths of the faith without being angry about that and trying to fight against them because they're going to say something else is true. Come on. We have to make sure that we are doing Catholic things, believing Catholic thoughts, Catholic truths. Why? Because Christ gave it to us this way. And Christ never said, it's okay, man, those pagans over there, they're cool. You can bring them in and you can actually join them. You can talk to them, whatever else you got to do, just so that everyone's comfortable and they know that I love them and they just keep doing it. Never. That did not happen. So we just have to remember, if we go and equivocate and if we go and act like those beliefs that are illegitimate, have legitimacy, we have now offended God. We are now in a state of sin and we now are promoting those belief systems that are meant to destroy the Catholic Church. That my friends, question 205 is the road to get into the church to actually defeat it. That is what we've seen over the past 60 years. That is what is now coming apart and coming home to roost as everything is now being challenged because no one actually knows what the core beliefs of the Catholic Church are anymore. Again, we got to read. We got to be good at being Catholic, and it takes a lot of time and effort, but we're not going to be able to do that if we start accepting false beliefs as if they're true. Question 206. Why does a Catholic sin against the faith by taking part in non-Catholic worship? That's a good thing that they're asking these questions. A Catholic sins against faith by taking part in non-Catholic worship because he thus professes belief in a religion he knows is false. Moreover, God knows they're false. 
in all seriousness, as Brian and I will tell you and other Catholics who are trying to go and live the good Catholic life will tell you, don't take our word for it. Take God's. And as much as we can tell you, God is really offended by Islam and Judaism. It's just not, it's not a thing. He's not good with it. Um, it's not up to us in our opinion and us sitting there and making that judgment. He literally told us himself. It's just up to us to sit there and go, mm, no, it's not good. We have St. John of Damascus telling us that Islam is paganism. We have the early fathers of the church, like Justin Martyr, who are literally going in there and destroying all of the Jewish ideology completely. So you're talking a religion that has only been around for 100 years by the time, and I'm talking Judaism, has only been around for over 100 years, just over it, by the time Justin Martyr is writing to Trifo the Jew and explaining why Judaism is completely false. And then you have Jerome who actually translates all the scriptures, makes the Vulgate, and at first is kind of swayed by the opinions that the Jews are giving him until he gets to the end of his life and he's like, whoa, that's all garbage. And he basically has to turn it all back around on itself and then identify where the fact, like, no, the Judaism thing is just totally off. They have no Levite priests. They have no actual foundation in Moses. They have no sacrifice because they have no temple. And in the end, they've already rejected Christ. These are all things that are infinitely offensive to God. There is no way he comes back and he's like, oh, no, no, it's cool, it's cool. No, we cannot participate or endorse or support those sets of beliefs because of the fact that God said he has a way he likes to do it. We better respect or defer to God's preference or else be subjected to whatever justice follows after that. God is a jealous God, and he told us that from the beginning. This might be a good time to address the false ecumenism of the last 50 years. And the Catholic Church, well, I shouldn't say the church, the, the prelates, the clergy. the laity who went along with it. They've set a terrible example for gen- now, I guess, maybe three generations of Catholics have grown up watching this nonsense of just, you know, meeting and meeting people where they're at. And ecumenism is not standing shoulder to shoulder with a Buddhist and, you know, a rabbi and some weird pagan, you know, quasi Indian headdress wearing guy like could be you know, from South America, Central America, you know, Western America. It doesn't really matter. We're not shoulder to shoulder. They're false. We're true. And we give them equal footing, equal billing at some of these events, not to point out Assisi and other various, you know, nonsensical events. But that's that's not true reaching out. True ecumenism doesn't, doesn't look like acceptance or a co-equal billing. And unfortunately, a lot of modern mainstream Catholics uh, just see it as okay these days. Except for we have to go and look with, I think, a key point here. What about the martyrs in heaven from the early church who refused to burn incense to the gods? So all they were asked was just a little smoke, just a little bit of things burned, just for this one little fake god. That's all they had to do. How did they all know? No, if I do this, God will be completely and infinitely offended, and it will be a grave sin, which ultimately will prohibit me from making it to heaven. Therefore, when a pagan asks me, go burn incense and do this little one little thing that's just totally offensive to God, these people are like, nah, man. Lions. (laughs) Yep, and they get thrown into the lions. They get their eyes gouged out. They get run over and trampled by bulls. You're talking how many different heads cut off? I don't even know. You have St. Corona getting torn in half. They tied palm trees and bent them together and then let the palm trees go to tear her in half. All over all these different things where they're like, just do this one little pagan thing. Burned alive, grilled, beheaded, eaten. All of it. Filleted. Filleted. Cut apart. Piece by piece. Boiled. 
everything you could possibly imagine. All is over. Just one little pagan act. Just one little thing. Just and a like, pinch of incense, Pete. Like, mm, no, nothing. So this ecumenism, this false ecumenism is ultimately a trick by Satan so that Christians in the past would die for it. They knew something that the supposed Christians nowadays don't know, and that is God is offended by everything which turns away from his perfect, immaculate, complete truth. And going back to John Henry Newman, if you remove any piece of truth from the whole, the whole is now tainted. It is no longer truth. Going back to water with poison, if I just put a little bit of poison in there, it's still poison. Can't do that. So the whole thing or nothing, we do not participate, condone, support, or try to act like it's okay any other worship that is outside of Catholic worship, any other ideology, because those ideologies are explicitly offensive to our God by saying he is either not God, he is not powerful as God, he is something else. Just know, guys. So for everybody's sake, come back around, be hard-nosed on it, because unfortunately, this is what happens. This is what sets us up for a bunch of people falling away from the faith. It's going to be a bad day. So think about it in terms of what needs to be done in your life, how you can make sure that everything you do is Catholic, how you make sure that the ways that you deal with those people that are not Catholic you're expressing to them what Catholic truth is, and ultimately you're willing to deal with whatever comes along with the rejection that is going to come because you decided, I have to be Catholic. I can't do the rest of this nonsense. So, heavy topics. Yay. So, let's move on to 207 now. It's see a light chapter. Here. I know. Sorry, this one's going to be a long episode, everybody. All right. What are the sins against hope? The sins against hope are presumption and despair. Again, we used this before, so we give Judas and uh, Martin Luther a lot of grief. Because in all seriousness, what Luther did is Luther turned his despair into presumption, is what he did. He said, well, since I can't be forgiven, that's his despair, then is what I'm going to do is I'm going to say that I'm going to make it to heaven anyways because God's going to be cool with me because he knows what I actually meant. So, which is the line I've heard from a lot of different Protestants of, he understands me. He knows why I did that one thing. And going back to that whole... Well, I mean, he knows why I did that one sin or I, why I burned that incense. Whatever. That, no. We can't do the presumption or the despair. Why? The unforgivable sin. Why? Because you never asked forgiveness for it. You never actually decided to amend your life. Everything you did around it was to reinforce that set of beliefs and that set of practices in your life that said you either couldn't be forgiven or God just knew who you were and it was okay. And because you lived your entire life like that, never doing an introspective to go, Maybe God's offended by my actions and you never tried to change them. You've now created an unforgivable situation and therefore you've now actually then sinned against hope. You've sinned against God Almighty sitting there saying he doesn't have any power or he doesn't have any justice because you're thinking he's all mercy without the justice. If that's what you're doing, that sins against hope. Moving forward into, well, actually we'll go and explain. Looks like we're going to keep building on this. Let's go into presumption then. A person sins by presumption. So this is a question 208. When does a person sin by presumption? A person sins by presumption when he trusts that he can be saved by his own efforts without God's help or by God's help without his own efforts. That sounds a lot like faith alone. So eerily so. (laughs) It's sitting there saying, well, no, he knows me. He knows that I'm a good person, which again, I said, Jesus actually says, call no man good. So even by that, making that statement, one's actually denying the words of Christ to say, he knows I'm a good person. No, he knows you're not a good person. He literally said in scripture, you're not a good person. None of us are good people. <laughs> so He knew it so much. He actually came to earth and founded a church and uh, 
died for your sins and established sacraments for you. Whoa. Yeah. It's mind blown. Not, so. to, not to cut to the end and you know, spoiler alert, but <laughs> so all of those things are contributing so that sacraments are contributing to that fact that Catholics know I have a lot I have to contribute to and a lot I have to agree with and a lot that I need to break on myself to actually come around to be that Christian that Christ wants me to be so that everything can work out in my favor for his glory. And when we're going to walk away from all the things he told us to do, there is sloth, there is pride, there is avarice, there is malice, you name it. Well, I don't have to forgive that guy. Well, I don't have to give that money back that that guy gave me on accident. Just keep going through everything that everyone says. Well, I don't, no, uh, he knows. God's okay with it. He, he gets it. He understands this other guy's a jerk. Everything that that person, I don't care who you are, would justify in your head to say, this is okay. You are sinning by presumption, saying God's okay with you acting like a jerk, you making sins against him, you offending him, and you're saying he's cool with it. That should concern you a little bit. God is perfect and will not be offended. Again, a jealous God. The Old Testament still applies, everybody. He is still a jealous God. The only difference now is that he said, I'm going to give you a little bit of mercy before the justice comes at the very end. I'm going to give you sacraments. I gave you a church. I gave you prelates. I gave you a way to get this whole thing remedied. But now it's your choice. So apply this to within a different paradigm. So not to use our Lord's name in such a cavalier fashion, but like the buddy Jesus type. Uh, that's Protestantism. You know, no, we're cool, man, right? But apply that to anyone else in your life of authority, the governor, the president, your congressman. You just presume things. You, you don't my know city him. council. My city council may not even be buddies with me. That's the, right? Depending on what happens when you go to that table and you're like, hey, I need you to do this one thing. They could look at you and be like, no. But without worship, without study, without any direct knowledge of of God truly, you just make a lot of assumptions about what pleases him, doesn't please him, what he's cool with, accepting, forgiving. That's Protestantism in a nutshell, and it's a Protestant hell because you can rationalize any disgusting choice in your life. Believe me, I've been there. Same here. And it's not hard to do because guess who's not the bad guy in that scenario? It's never me, right? It was never me. Uh, it was always somebody else's fault or you're just a victim of circumstance. God understands. But to do this with another human being, whether it's a cousin you haven't seen in a while, I could not even begin to assume <laughs> what my cousin likes and dislikes. I, not that I don't know her well. I just don't spend enough time next to, you know, in, in proximity to get to know her on that level. and it, it, That intimacy that you would get with a person you spend a lot of time with. But that's God. And of all people, we're the creatures and he's the creator and we just project. So... Here's another thing. If I I haven't seen like a friend in like 10 years, is the first thing I'm going to say to him, since I haven't seen him in 10 years, is the most off-color and foul joke I could possibly imagine. Because, I mean, it was funny to me, right? <laughs> I don't even know what this dude thinks anymore, what's going on with his life, but I'm just going to go and just belt it out there no matter what actually happens. The thing is, is this guy that I would have done something so terrible to that all of you guys would be like, ooh, that makes me feel kind of uncomfortable, that whole scenario. You wouldn't do that to him. But at the same token, you'd take an infinitely perfect God who gave you a Ten Commandments. What? How many Beatitudes? Plus the Great Commandments. He extended the Ten Commandments and then went even further to start explaining how it all worked in Scripture. And we're going to go so there's like, no, no, watch this. I'm going to do something totally offensive and say it's okay. What? <laughs> like when you spell it out, it just it's nuts to even to consider. 
But this is what people do in their heads because it's easier than confronting a sinful life. And I'm not accusing or, or I'm not, I guess, condemning in this regard. Because if you don't know, you don't know. If you're not brought up, I was not brought up in a religious family. I just no. a lot of things I didn't know. Yeah. But but the heart, I'll tell you what, you never learn struggle until you try to amend your life. You have no idea how deep some of these habits or uh, or things that you've just associated with for so many years are until you try to get rid of them. Um, talk about really weeding your garden down to the roots. It sucks. I'll be the first to admit it. But the struggle is what builds... And the grace will be provided to you, and that's really what we're talking about. We're not we're not trying to make this sound insurmountable. Um, God knows what you need to get through whatever you're getting through, but really, it's the effort. I always think of that one that one painting in the Sistine Chapel with the with you know God and Adam and the finger, right? <laughs> the elbow. Yeah, it's like ah, oh, just uh, just a flick of the wrist, and it's really all we need to do. He does everything else. All you need to do is have a small applied piece of will. And uh, just extend that elbow. It's it's very subtle if you look at the painting. I know we've talked about it in another episode, so bring it up again. But look at Adam's elbow. That's the complete problem that all men have is we always find a way to justify why we shouldn't just go that extra inch and just finish and Ah, do it well. I'll do it tomorrow, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) But not today. But not today. So, and I think then... The uh, you started to bring it up a little bit. We'll move on to the question two hundred nine. When does a person sin by despair? A person sins by despair when he deliberately refuses to trust that God will give him the necessary help to save his soul. All of us have been on this one. All of us have gotten to the point where, like, you got to be kidding me. I I don't know how I'm going to be perfect. I don't know how I'm going to be able to get through those gates of heaven. I don't know how I'm going to be able to go and satisfy all these virtuous requirements. And again, I just did that stupid little tick, that little vice that I can't kick. I just did it again. And in the end, I just start feeling bad. I get all like wrapped up in myself. And then meanwhile, as that thing goes wrong, something else goes wrong and something else goes wrong. That moment is what builds into that despair. And I'm not talking about spiritual desolation. That's a secondary, that's a different thing. And I'll bring that up in a minute. But despair here is where we're actually sitting there and saying, people now start doubting their capacity to be saved. They start doubting the fact that they can be perfect. They talk themselves out of it. They doubt the fact that they can actually be freed of the chains that Satan has over them. So they're lying to themselves saying he's going to always have them and I'll never get away, which is exactly what Satan wants you to say, people, because it's going to be true (laughs) to a point if you stay in that rut. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. And I think that's the Henry Ford, uh, whether you say you can or you can't, you're right. <laughs> so, and in this case, God has actually given us all the tools to get out of the rut. The thing we don't want to lie with to ourselves, do not lie to yourself about it. It's a learned thing. Brian and I both learned this. It's going to hurt. It's really going to hurt. All right. You had to contort your body and your soul into this terrible, terrible position so that you could continue to live your life in the way that you thought you were supposed to live it. And it just hurts even going one step at a time, but like that heroin addict, you're like, but I don't want to kick it because I don't know what it'll feel like when it goes. I just can't live without this thing. So I got to leave my body in this messed up state where everything's in pain. And the problem is, is that guess what? You know, the only way you get out of that withdrawals, (laughs) you (laughs) got to straighten it all out. You got a bunch of chiropractor appointments coming up. You may even have some surgeries in here. It's not going to be pretty. And it's going to take you months, years, the rest of your life to get all of those kinks worked out and get all of that poison out and get everything all sorted. And the thing is, is just like a tooth coming out. Oh yeah. (laughs) It hurts when it's messed up. It hurts more when it gets pulled out, 
but you want the healing that happens at the end. It's like, and again, chemotherapy, I think we've talked about it in that regard too. That's another analogy. You go through more pain in the meantime to get rid of the thing that we know is bad, but why? Because the end state is what you're going for in this case. And you can do that to be freed of all the garbage and all the corruption, but it's a commitment to accept the cross. You have to go to Calvary now. You have to pick it up. You have to take all the scourging that comes along with this. You have to take your own crown of thorns and go in your own blood as everything hurts. You walk to your Calvary. And all the while, again, all those people who don't come along with you, all the ones who said you're stupid and why are you being Catholic and why did you tell us our religion was wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You take all of those and you just keep going. You don't stop until you actually get crucified and you're gone. That's that's all we got. That's going to hurt. So don't think that coming out of the vice is actually all roses. It's not. It'll hurt. And this is where I then go into spiritual desolation. So despair says I can't be forgiven. It's terrible. I can't get out. Oh, no. What do I do? Or it's going to hurt too bad changing. I'm, I'm scared of changing, so I don't. Spiritual desolation is when you actually go and do it. You know, you've committed and you've done all these things and you said, I'm going to change my life and I'm going to pray and I'm going to go and meditate and all the things I need to do. I'm going to go and take away the near occasions of sin. I have amended my life. And when you go there, though, all those good feelings you got when you realized, oh, I could do this. Oh, it's happening. Oh, these people are, I have support networks. I have all these things that are working and all the consolations disappear. And so this is St. Alphonsus writes about this one at the end of his life because he ends up going through, I think it was like six years straight something like that at the very end where he gets to this point where all the consolations, all the good feelings are gone, even though he knows it's the right thing to do. And that's the hardest part for a Catholic is doing the things that are right, even though they hurt. And even though you get no immediate reward for doing them, no one tells you you did a good job. No one affirms you in your belief. You just sit there and you just keep trudging on practically what feels like oftentimes alone to do this work. And the only reason you do it is because you know you're not alone, but God has said, no, this is the time I'm going to take away all the good feelings. You're not going to have those right now. So spiritual desolation is still a commitment to do what's right, knowing that it'll end, but you still have hope you're going to be saved versus despair where you're just saying forgiveness is not even possible. Perfection is not possible. I quit. So just two different approaches, but knowing kind of the terminology, I will try to include that uh, spiritual desolation uh, link in the uh, comments for this video. All right. uh, For this podcast. So question 210, what are the chief sins against charity? The chief sins against charity are hatred of God and our neighbor, envy, sloth, and scandal. Now, why would they say all this? Well, you guys are all looking outside right now and seeing all sorts of weird stuff in the streets and all sorts of terrible people being angry and whatnot. And in the end, what do they do when they don't love their neighbor? Well, I just want to take his stuff because I want it and he shouldn't have it. Or I don't really feel like doing much work because that's hard, and I don't care that these other people need my help. I don't care. Or, you know what, that other person, I just, I'm pissed off at them, so I'm going to just start uh, lying. Or I'm going to go start saying, hey, do you see that bad thing he did? Or, hey, these other bad people. I'm going to start encouraging people to sin because I'm just pissed off. All of that is a choice to refrain from sacrificing ourselves in whatever it's going to take to do the glory of God. And instead, we're like, I'm just going to, I'm comfortable in my own skin. I'm good enough. And then do whatever we want. And if that means we hurt our neighbor, yeah. That means we offend God. Yeah. Those are all sins against charity. We have to commit ourselves to giving. If Christ gave the example of how to give us all of his body, all of his blood, all of his soul, and his divinity, 
We have access to all of it, if we choose it. Then we have no excuse whatsoever to hold back anything. These sins, we set ourselves up to be our own God. You know, it's uh, most people that I've met uh, throughout the course of my life that truly had a for real hatred of God and and the church and really, I mean, really just angry, bitter people. It's it normally always boiled down to there was something in their lives that they felt guilty of or maybe subconsciously knew wasn't socially acceptable or... Or they felt God let them down, that God took something from them. It was them. personal. It was all selfish. It was all pride. So it's, it's always about the self, right? And, and slothfulness and comfort. It's about you. It's about your yourself. Uh, not looking out for your neighbor because it's inconvenient or it costs money or time. is about self. All of this is because you've chosen to... Just focus on you. You know, you're number one. Yeah, that's the way the world's taught us. I deserve this. That's right. I've worked hard, Pete. That's why I didn't have children. I wanted to, to you know, <laughs> wanted to just enjoy my life, right? It's always about you and comfort. Um, and and really, you could boil down a lot of these concepts. I know we've, we've kind of talked around a spectrum of things, but all of this comes down between choosing yourself and choosing God if you really wanted to simplify it. And when we choose ourselves... It's it's always for the wrong reasons. It, there's never like, hey, Pete, I would have helped you out, <laughs> except I wanted to play a video game. Yeah, I didn't feel like helping you on the side of the road with that flat tire. Like there's never a good reason when you say it out loud. So. All right. And we're moving down here to the end now. So we got. All right. Question 211. Go down to the last three questions here. Besides the sins against faith, hope, and charity, what other sins does the first commandment forbid? Besides the sins against faith, hope, and charity, the first commandment forbids also superstition and sacrilege. All right, let's cover them both here quick. Superstition. Superstition is when I think that there's some weird pattern to the universe, and if I do something a certain way, then it'll work out the way I want it to. Or it won't work out the way I don't want it to. But whatever, we make up a false sense of judgment and behavior and actions and results that we (laughs) hold on to ourselves, which means what we've actually done now is denied the divine power of God. (laughs) Whoops. I spilled the salt. I better throw it over my left shoulder, Pete. I've watched Dumb and Dumber. It doesn't work out well. No. (laughs) So this is where we shouldn't be sitting there and talking about black cats and ladders and the umbrella. Umbrella's inside. Karma. No, just just no. So, and when we say good luck, no, we'd have no luck. Luck does not exist. There's just, I did it or I didn't do it. Things were going to work. They didn't work, whatever. And it's all about my reactions to all of those events. There's no luck. There just is. Things will happen. Our job, our obligation to God, I know people like talking about liberties and rights for ourselves, but we forget God's. God has a right for us to commit ourselves to him in our entirety. And so we cannot try to make up some false system of some false economy that denies God his power. That's just, no, we don't do that. And the other one, sacrilege, this is where we sit there and we're finding ways to twist and throw back everything God gave us in his face. In the end, we're, we're denigrating it. We're profaning it. So we're making it natural. We are turning it into a mockery. So we don't believe it. We don't treat it with that respect that's needed. And that, unfortunately, going back to all the problems in the past 50, 60 years, 
especially Catholics, is what the sacrament of confession, as an example, turned into. And that everyone's like, well, I just got to go tell them and then I just can go back out and I can do whatever I got to do. Or, you know, after I get done with this, there's always confession. So come on, like we're literally doing what God said not to do in refusing firm purpose of amendment. We're refusing his grace to seek virtue. We actually are desiring the world so much that we would still bring up confession in whatever arrogant, prideful, messed up way. We're like, yeah, confession, it's got me. It's okay. Again, God knows me. He knows I'm a good person. He'll be fine with it. Like, that's terrible. We're committing sacrilege when we mock something that he gave us. We we took all of his divine commandments and we said, they're not really commandments. I'll do what I want. That's what happens when we go and take communion in a state of mortal sin because we didn't go to confession. We said, nah, he'll forgive me. He knows so I don't, I'm good. I can just go consume the body, blood, soul, and divinity. Even though Paul said, what punishments await those who consume unworthily? Oh, it's awful. <laughs> It's, it's bad. Yeah. It's bad. And so the whole you thing eat is, your own destruction. It's like, oh, we needed long game. Think big on this and understand what we are doing and what an infinite God thinks about our finite actions. They impact him infinitely from the standpoint of his judgment of us. So if we want to be judged worthy of heaven, we have to make sure that all of those offensive things are gone. That's a hard goal. No sacrilege. No superstitions, just God, just his economy of grace and just his commandments. And we can make this whole thing work out. But again, it's a lot of work. We can do it though. So if you got any questions, throw them at us. Question 212. And cool. Hey, we're going to address it anyways. Awesome. Question 212. When does a person sin by superstition? A, a person sins by superstition when he attributes to a creature a power that belongs to God alone as when he makes use of charms or spells, believes in dreams or fortune telling, or goes to spiritists. So we talked about it a little bit when we were doing the summary above, and this is just another expansion of that same problem. It's not just systems of luck and salt and all this other stuff. Like These are people who believe in magic. These are people who uh, do tarot cards because they seriously are believing this is what's going to impact my future if I don't you know, not look at this card type thing. Like, oh, come on. And so again, dreams. Uh, even... This is something that Catholics got to worry about too. <laughs> dreams. Uh, John of the Cross, St. John of the Cross says, don't believe the dreams that you have right out of the gate. You actually should be denying them because there are demons who manipulate us in our imagination, which doesn't do us any favors either. So we shouldn't be believing in dreams because we don't know who is the source of them because God is not necessarily the source. And then when we get to fortune telling and spiritists, these people are using the same forces and it's demonic. So... If we believe in God, then we have to believe his truth in scripture. If we believe his truth in scripture, we have to believe in angels. If we believe in angels, that means we believe in the good ones and the bad ones. And if we believe in the good ones and the bad ones, that means the bad ones are still here doing things like Christ said they would. And we have examples in the New Testament of them possessing people and causing all manner of problems. And we have all sorts of examples throughout all of Catholic history in Writings from the Church Fathers. I know Justin Martyr is one of the earliest ones to address it, but you can actually start reading about what do the demons meddle in and what are they trying to get people to do. Things like consulting them. And this is the same thing that, what was that, Endor, the Witch of Endor? That uh, um, So the Witch of Endor, where Saul goes, consults her so that he could talk to Samuel, who's dead. That's terrible because the only thing that facilitates such an arrangement, which is completely counter to nature, completely counter to the divinity of God and all of his commandments, 
Demons. That's all that's left. The Praetor Natural. So it's an Old Testament version of a uh, of a Ouija board, basically. It is. I mean, it, all of it is. Hey, look, guys, don't play with demons. It's uh, lesson one, two. Circle back to the superstition. Uh, Protestants like to accuse us with the metals and and you know the scapulars. Like, guys, these are not magic. You know, just because you wear Saint Christopher's medal that's been blessed or Saint Benedict's medal, the power is not in the metal. Uh, this goes back to understanding the basics of the faith again. Um, but yeah, and dreams back to dreams or any sort of apparition. I don't care if you are, are a seer at Medjugorje or if you are seeing uh, the Blessed Mother yourself out of your closet, just don't trust it at all until the church tells you authoritatively otherwise. If God really is appearing to you in some fashion through the Blessed Mother, through the saints, or, or he appears himself, uh, he'll get to you. He'll get the message out regardless of how many times you say no. Have faith in that. Yeah, and the superstitions and trying to act like our medals are superstitious or our relics are superstitious and all those things. It is not superstitious to know that God has the power to bless and that God has the power to actually be where he wants to be, when he wants to be there, and to keep evil away from those places. At no point did any Catholic sit there and say from a sound church-supported angle that we are now impervious to evil because we had a medal one time. No, that's dumb. Like what we are saying <laughs> now is that I need all the help I can get. And right now, if I'm going to do things which are of God to glorify God, which ultimately as a handful of you, whoever you, whoever among you has stayed for the entirety of this episode and has not left because you were angry about me talking about Muslims and Protestants and Jews and pagans, and you're still here and you know that, I know that by doing things like that, demons will come after me more and make it harder for me to go and spread such a message. If I can go have a miraculous medal here so that I can have that remembrance of the Blessed Mother, I have that image just to think about it and live that way, and I know that holy water that was exercised has touched it and things like that, awesome. This, good. Anything that I can keep a few more demons away because I got piles that are trying to come after me anyway. So, it's all about us being freed of evil. And as much as they would sit there and tell us we don't read the Bible, they should go read about the bones of Elisha. And then when they go see that about the fact that they were blessed enough that the bones alone touched a dude and brought him back to life, Catholics aren't making this up. It's Protestants who are making up that it doesn't exist. So let's make sure we just get the order right. As <laughs> we're talking about all the truths and the facts of the Christian faith. All right, last question here so you guys don't have to listen to me anymore. When does a person sin by sacrilege? A person sins by sacrilege when he mistreats sacred persons, places, or things. Again, when people are going to abuse them and take them for granted, we've now committed sacrilege. We don't abuse the sacraments. We don't abuse or take for granted all of the institutions of the church, the clergy, etc., etc. There are many, many things we have to cherish and respect and honor, pay reverence, because it's just because it's of God, because God dwells there, because God wanted us to have it, because God empowered it, instantiated it, invented it, whatever. God always deserves that reverence. And any one of his agents or one of his creatures that ultimately still bears his signatures all need to be treated with that reverence the whole time. So that's where we're going with it. When we're looking at sacrilege, don't go and just start being disrespectful to the things that are holy. So that has covered a lot of ground today, a really long episode after a long hiatus. So you guys enjoy all that. 
Um, make sure to throw us questions down in the comments below. Send us emails. You should be able to get a hold of that. Check out our blog. There's more stuff on the liturgical year out there. If there's any prayer videos and things you want us to do, get to us. We'll, we'll work them with you and make sure that you get the content you need. So think all this out. And we'll be looking forward to getting back with you here pretty soon with uh, the next lesson. So thank you all for listening. Again, follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes. Subscribe to us on YouTube and uh, share this podcast wherever you can. So thank you all. And uh, we'll see you soon. St. Joseph, pray, pray for, for us. us.